Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. Welcome. So today we're talking about the topic which is admittedly a little difficult to teach without it becoming tedious, and that is the first instalment of ethics. And I expect that this will probably only take two discussions to get through. So our starting point is going to be the first source of ethical rules, and that is the Legal Profession Uniform Conduct Barristers Rules of 2015. There are also um, supplementary issues arising from the Legal Profession Uniform Law Schedule 1 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law Application Act Parts uh, 4.3 and 5.4 and the Civil Procedure Act of 2010. So there are some ad hoc issues arising from those acts, which I'll have a look at in the next session. So the starting point then is to have a look at these barristers' rules and there are really so many of them. And there's no sort of shortcut, I suppose, to uh, figuring all of them out. So what we're going to do is today have a look at 20 quick topics and then really there's no option other than looking at them cover to cover and trying to commit them as best you can, not to memory, but just to a coherent order so that if you were to see a fact pattern that speaks to an issue of ethics, you'd know which part of the barrister's rules that you'd need to zero in on. The barrister's rules are organised coherently in the sense that they fall into different topics, but then once a topic is named, such as the duty to the court, then the subsequent rules that arise under the duty to the court follow in that cluster. So if you can manage to identify what the key topic is, then you'll get a sequence of ethical rules and it's just a matter of identifying them in their sequence. As I've now said a few times and I've included on the slide as well, be cautious of the fact that when it comes to answering ethics problems in the exam, they tend to travel in packs so that it looks like, and this and um, I I've, haven't noted this at slide two, but that would be the point at which you'd start, one ethics rule about conferring with the witness will then turn into a number of other ethics rules, for instance, about breach of confidentiality. So where you start with one topic, be cognizant of the fact that there are often other related topics. So the starting point with the barrister's rules are essentially the primary objectives of the rules, and they're included in rule three of the rules. So objects of the rules are to ensure barristers act in accordance with the general principles of professional conduct and act independently, recognise and discharge their obligations in relation to the administration of justice and provide these high standard services. So that's what all of the subsequent rules speak to in overview. And I've included at slide four the principles that govern the application of the rules. Now, what we're going to be doing for the purpose of each of these 20 rules of ethics that I've chosen, I haven't chosen them completely at random, but these are the ones that seem to come up more often than um, others, is to fill the gaps. So I'll take you to a rule and as we go, you can fill in the gaps as I read them to you. This is um, in recognition of the fact that ethical rules don't require any particular analysis and there's no synthesising that takes place. So it's not as though the High Court has had anything to say about ethical rules. 
You just need to be able to recognise them and articulate them. And so we'll do the same um, in this exercise. So firstly, general. So far, so good. Barrister must not engage in conduct which is dishonest or otherwise fill in the first gap discreditable to a barrister. So slide five, the first missing gap is dishonest or otherwise discreditable to a barrister. Further, they can't engage in contact, conduct which is prejudicial to the administration of justice or likely to diminish public confidence in the legal profession or the administration of justice is the second gap. So don't in, engage in conduct which is likely to diminish public confidence in the legal profession or the administration of justice or otherwise bring the legal profession into disrepute. Rule 12. A barrister must be a sole practitioner and must not practice in partnership with any person. So the first gap at slide six is practice in partnership with any person. B, practice as the employer of any legal practitioner. C is practice as the employee of any person. And of course, an incorporated legal practice at, at um, slide six, D and E. Could you please make a note on that slide? You need to cross-reference to a subsequent rule which relates to devilling, which is permissible. That's a, I know it sounds like a weird expression that is specific to the practice of um, being a, a chambers-based junior. So chambers-based juniors are an exception to this rule and they're set out, but we'll come back to that in a bit. Rule 17 is reasonably frequently examined appropriately, the cab rank principle. So a barrister must accept a brief from a solicitor to appear before a court in a field in which the barrister practices or professes to practice if the brief is within the, practice, the barristers, fill the gaps, capacity, skill and experience. So missing gaps, page uh, slide 7A, barristers, capacity, skill and experience. And secondly, uh, you don't need to fill in any gaps here. The barrister would be available to work as a barrister when the brief would require the barrister to appear or to prepare. And the barrister is not already committed to other professional or personal engagements. C, the fee offered on the brief is acceptable to the barrister. And D, the barrister is not obliged or permitted to re refuse the brief under one of the other rules, which we will get back to. Rule 21, nothing in these rules shall be taken to oblige a barrister to in accept instructions directly from a person who is not a solicitor. Now, this is reasonably frequently examined and that is the direct brief process. So that is worth making a special note. Rule 21 is an exception to the cab rank rule. The cab rank responsibilities arise where a solicitor is briefing. Cab rank responsibilities do not arise where it is a direct brief. And that scenario where a client approaches a barrister directly seems to come up um, perhaps every second intake of the bar exam. Five is rule 22, which is nice and uh, small, so I will do my best to enliven all of the gaps. A barrister who proposes to accept instructions directly from a person who's not a solicitor or office of government, department or agency whose usual duties include engaging lawyers must A, inform the prospective client in writing of 
Now, firstly, the effective rules 11 and 13, which you can extract. B, secondly, the fact that circumstances may require the client to retain an instructing solicitor at short notice or possibly during the performance of the work. So next is any other disadvantage which the barrister believes on reasonable grounds may as a real possibility be suffered by the client if the client does not retain an instructing solicitor. Four is the relative capacity of the barrister in performing barrister's work to apply the requested facilities or services to the client compared to the capacity of the barrister together with an instructing solicitor to supply them. And five, a fair description of the advocacy experience of the barrister. And further, obtain a written acknowledgement signed by the prospective client that they've been informed of the matters um, in this letter. Now, this is, as I say, frequently assessed. And so the question will be how much of that information you could disclose under the pressures of time in an exam. So it's no easy feat to go through those prerequisites. In the back of your mind, you might be thinking whether it is going to be an appropriate candidate to accept instructions directly. Now, that will depend on the circumstances of the case, but in the circumstances that the examiner prefers, it's a matter of some complexity, either a matter proceeding to trial in a criminal case or a matter of complexity in a civil case in which pleadings uh, may need to be drawn and witnesses may need to be the subject of instructions and conference and so forth. And so on that basis, you, you might take the opportunity to reflect even going after having gone through the, um, the protocol of the advice in writing as to whether it is a matter which is suitable to be uh, accepted directly. Okay, so in relation to the next matter, we're moving on to our sixth example, Rule 23, the duty to the court. So the next missing gap at slide 10 is duty to the court. A barrister has an overriding duty to the court to act with independence in the interests of administration of justice. You may not be asked a fine point in relation to the conflict of ethical duties, but you may remember from past studies or even practice that the overriding responsibility is going to be the court and that takes precedence over the duty to the client as affirmed by that rule number 23. So collateral rules relating to that duty, I've managed to tuck in a few, but this is also to illustrate the point that if, for instance, an issue were to arise in relation to duty to the court, the way that the rules are set up is that the principal duty is established in the first nominated rule and then the collateral rules will follow after that in quite an easily recognisable way. So you just need quickly to refine which of the rules that follow are going to be the ones that you'd need to extract in the facts of your case. Rule 24, a barrister must not deceive or knowingly or recklessly mislead the court. The immediately following rule is Rule 25. A barrister must take all necessary steps to correct any misleading statement made by the barrister to a court, any misleading statement made by the barrister to a court, as soon as possible after the barrister becomes aware that the statement was misleading. 
Moving on to Rule 29, which is still in that run of rules that relate to the duty to the court, a barrister must at the appropriate time in the hearing of the case, if the court has not yet been informed of that matter, inform the court of, and you can see those are points binding authorities, or if there's no binding authority, that's that fact, and any applicable legislation known to the barrister and which the barrister has reasonable grounds to believe to be directly in point, directly in point against the client's case against the client's case. Now, point to note there is that the duty of candour in relation to legislative and case law authorities includes cases that are adverse to the client's interest. Now, question, what's the appropriate time um, that would arise after um, the revelation of the fact that the person has misled the court it would be, oh, sorry, uh, appropriate time in the hearing. It is the logical uh, point in connection with legal argument. So where the court is hearing legal argument, then you would fuse reference to the authority, the lack of authority or the fact that there are adverse authorities to that very point. That's the logical point to raise it and it's the respectful point to raise it so that the court is not left with a responsibility of three quarters of an hour later realising that there is a case that's adverse to the very point that's being adduced. We move on to the next tranche of responsibilities, the duties to the client, starting at Rule 35. A barrister must promote and protect fearlessly, slide 12. So the first missing word on slide 12, promote and protect fearlessly and by all proper and lawful means, the client's best interest to the best of the barrister's skill and diligence and do so without regard to his or her own interest, without regard to his or her own interest or to any consequences to the barrister or to any other person. So the second gap at slide 12, his or her own interest or to any consequences to the barrister or to any other person. So we're definitely seeing a trend in relation to the way that those rules are organised. The collateral rules in relation to the duty to the client start immediately following that duty at Rule 35. So at Rule 36, a barrister must inform the client or the instructing solicitor about the alternatives to fully contested adjudication of the case. Fully contested adjudication of the case which are reasonably available to the client unless the barrister believes on reasonable grounds that the client already has such an understanding of those alternatives as to permit the client to make decisions about the client's best interests in relation to the litigation. This is a scenario which comes up from time to time, which may be paired with the duties under the Civil Procedure Act, which we'll get to in our next discussion about the responsibility to take steps which advance the case. In a civil case, that does not necessarily mean by way of litigation. So it might mean that ADR processes advance the case more effectively than um, adjudicatory processes. 
note please rule 37 which is the second point on slide 13 a barrister must seek to assist the client to understand the issues in the case and their possible rights and obligations sufficiently to permit the client to give proper instructions including instructions in connection with any compromise of the case also a scenario that comes up from time to time on the bar exam and the exam scenario seems to be the overzealous barrister who is desperate to take instructions directly from a client and who at that stage finds um, the idea of a trial irresistible, even though compromise is fairly open. Rule 38, a barrister must, unless circumstances warrant, otherwise in the barrister's considered opinion, advise a client who is charged with any criminal offence about any law, procedure or practice law, procedure or practice, which in substance holds out the prospect of some advantage, including diminution of penalty, if the client pleads guilty or authorises other steps towards reducing the issues, time, cost or distress. Issues, time, cost or distress involved in the proceedings. So the default position in relation to any criminal matter is that the barrister must articulate that there are different paths available to the accused. And inevitably, one of those might end up being what might happen if the accused were to plead guilty to some or all of the charged acts. So rule 38, the missing links at the last bullet point of slide 13 were law, procedure or practice, which in substance holds out the prospect to some advantage and reducing the issues, time, cost or distress involved in the proceedings. And in criminal cases, the discussion continues. Now note, at rule 42, we move on to independence. A barrister must not act as the mere mouthpiece of the client. So mere mouthpiece of the client or of the instructing solicitor and must exercise the forensic judgments called for during the case independently after the appropriate consideration of the client's and the instructing solicitor's wishes where practicable. Rule 43 a barrister does not breach the barrister's duty to the client and will not have failed to give appropriate consideration in, to the client's or the instructing solicitor's wishes simply by choosing, contrary to those wishes, to exercise the forensic judgments called for during the case so as to confine any hearings to those issues which the barrister believes to be the real issues. Slide 14, the first gap, sorry, the third gap, believes to be the real issues. Present the client's case as quickly as simply as may be consistent with its robust advancement or inform the court of any persuasive authority. And this missing link is against the client's case. Against the client's case. My suggestion to you here, please, is to cross-reference that rule, which is rule 43, with the um, overarching obligations under the Civil Procedure Act. So cross-reference Rule 43 with the overarching obligations under the Civil Procedure Act. There might be a scenario where the client would like to put everything in issue 
And whilst in some fora that may be okay, uh, possibly even in a criminal proceeding, in civil proceedings, not only is there this ethical rule which allows a barrister a limited exception to duties to the client, but there might also be an obligation under the Civil Procedure Act to um, that would put the client's instructions at risk of disobedience because there's a higher commitment to the duties to the court both under these rules and under the Civil Procedure Act. Now, the next tranche of rules that we look at arise under Rule 49, which is headed duty to the opponent. A barrister must not knowingly make a false or misleading statement to an opponent in relation to the case, including its compromise. A barrister must not knowingly make a false or misleading statement to an opponent in relation to the case, including its compromise. 50. A barrister must take all necessary steps to correct any false or misleading statement, false or misleading statement in relation to the case made by the barrister to an opponent as soon as possible after the barrister becomes aware that the statement was false or misleading. So that would be paired with the duty to the court, of course, and continuing that run of uh, collateral rules to duty to the opponent, a barrister must not, does not make a false or misleading statement to an opponent so the last gap at slide 15, a barrister does not make a false or misleading statement to an opponent simply by failing to correct an error on any matter stated to the barrister by the opponent. So it is not unethical to fail to correct an error made by the opponent, but it is unethical to knowingly mislead the opponent. Slide 16 takes us up to Rule 57, the efficient administration of justice. And um, whilst I've looked at 20 of the rules, there are another approximately 70 for you to look at in your own time. Luckily, they are organised logically. Rule 57 relates to the efficient administration of justice. A barrister must seek to ensure that the barrister does work which the barrister is briefed to do in sufficient time to enable compliance with, this is a long one, orders, directions, rules or practice notes of the court. Compliance with orders, directions, rules or practice notes of the court. And if the barrister has reasonable grounds to believe that the barrister may not complete any such work on time, must, this is another long one, promptly inform the instructing solicitor or the client. Promptly inform the instructing solicitor or the client. Okay, we move on to integrity of evidence and Rule 69. The integrity of evidence provisions starting at Rule 69 are also reasonably frequently assessed. So in relation to Rule 69, a barrister must not advise or suggest to a witness that false or misleading evidence should be given. Advise or suggest to a witness that false or misleading evidence should be given, nor condone another person doing so, or B, coach a witness by advising what answers the witness should give, what answers the witness should give, 
to questions which might be asked. Coach a witness by advising what answers the witness should give to questions which might be asked. That is, as I say, one that is examined reasonably frequently. And as I've suggested throughout, that is a problem that can be merged into a larger scenario, such as the idea of conferring with more than one witness at the same time. Rule 70, note, a barrister does not breach this rule by expressing a general admonition to tell the truth or by questioning and testing in conference the version of evidence to be given by a prospective witness, including drawing the witness's attention to inconsistencies or other difficulties with the evidence, but must not encourage the witness to give evidence different from the evidence which the witness believes to be true. The evidence which the witness believes to be true. Okay, we move into conferring with lay witnesses. So integrity of evidence, as I've mentioned, is a batch of provisions that deal with how witnesses and documents are to be treated. Over examined, as I've mentioned, and the way that those successive rules are organised relates to the different group of prospective witnesses. So we'll move to lay witnesses, slide 18. Rule 71, a barrister must not confer with or condone another legal practitioner conferring with more than one lay witness, more than one lay witness, including a party or client at the same time and the further caveats about any issue which there are reasonable grounds for the barrister to believe may be contentious at a hearing and where such conferral could affect evidence to be given by any of those witnesses unless the barrister believes on reasonable grounds that special circumstances require such a conference. Special circumstances require such a conference. Note here, please, before we continue, that this only relates to lay witnesses. And in practice, as you may be aware, when it comes to more than one expert, and um, we've already touched on expert witnesses in the context of evidence, we'll come back to it in the context of procedure, but expert witnesses do not fall within this provision and it's not unacceptable under Rule 71 to confer with more than one expert witness at the same time. Rule 72, a barrister does not breach Rule 71 by conferring with or condoning another legal practitioner conferring with more than one client, more than one client about undertakings to a court, admissions or concessions of fact, amendments of pleading or compromise. Okay, the next note, please, if you're interested, Rule 76, media comment, arises often in practice, arises rarely in the exam, but there is a batch of uh, rules at 76, 77 and 78 that deal with media comment that didn't make my top 20, but you should be aware of them. Um, I have, of course, linked to the rules themselves in the prep for this uh, topic. So we'll move on to delinquent or guilty clients, also frequently examined. A barrister who, as a result of information provided by the client or a witness called on behalf of the client, is informed by the client or by the witness during a hearing or after judgment or decision is reserved and while it remains pending, that the client or a witness called on behalf of the client, A, has lied in a material particular. 
lied in a material particular to the court or has procured another person to lie to the court. B, has falsified or procured another person to falsify in any way a document which has been tendered. Or C, has suppressed or procured another person to suppress material evidence, to suppress material evidence upon a topic where there was a positive duty to make disclosure to the court, suppress material evidence, must refuse to take any further part in the case unless the client authorises the barrister to inform the court of the lie, falsification or suppression, and must promptly inform the court of the lie, falsification or suppression upon the client authorising the barrister to do so, but otherwise must not inform the court of the lie, falsification or suppression. So this provision, Rule 79, provides that the answer to a plot point that comes up in so many movies based around people charged with murder, in short, if the lawyer becomes aware, the barrister becomes aware in the running or prior to decision of this impropriety, then they're under that positive obligation to raise it and or withdraw. And if they become aware of it after, then the closing words of the rule tackle the situation. Otherwise, must not inform the court of the lie, falsification or suppression. So the pivot point of, so, of the you know, moral resolution of so many Hollywood movies is when did the revelation become known? And that will provide a full answer to whether the barrister needs to reveal it or not. Rule 80 comes up quite often in practice and from time to time in exams as well. A barrister briefed to appear in criminal proceedings whose client confesses guilt to the barrister but maintains a plea of not guilty. A should, subject to the client, accepting the constraints set out in the provisions that I'm just about to deal with, but not otherwise, and, and it is continue to act in the client's defence, but not otherwise, continue to act in the client's defence. And that provides the answer to the very last of the Hollywood movie plot points. B must not falsely suggest that some other person committed the offence charge. C must not set up an affirmative case inconsistent with the confession. D must ensure that the prosecution is put to proof of its case. So slide 20, second gap, put to proof of its case. E may argue that the evidence as a whole does not prove that the client is guilty of the offence charged. F may argue that for some reason of law, the client is not guilty of the offence charged. G may argue that for any other reason not prohibited by B or C, the client should not be convicted of the offence charged. And H must not continue to act must not continue to act if the client insists on giving evidence denying guilt or requires the making of a statement asserting the client's interests as innocence, must not continue to act. Rule 83, the next group of provisions relates to prosecutor's duties. So a scenario raising a prosecutor must take you straight to 83 and following of the rules. A prosecutor must fairly assist the court to arrive at the truth. A prosecutor must fairly assist the court 
to arrive at the truth must seek impartially to have the whole of the relevant evidence placed intelligibly before the court to the second gap on slide 21 placed intelligibly before the court and must seek to assist the court with adequate submissions of law adequate submissions of law to enable the law properly to be applied to the facts collateral to this rule a number of ancillary rules 84 no gaps nice a prosecutor must not press the prosecution's case for a conviction beyond a full and firm presentation of the case moving to rule 87 a prosecutor must disclose to the opponent as soon as practicable all material including names of and means of finding prospective witnesses in connection with such material available to the prosecutor or of which the prosecutor becomes aware which could constitute evidence relevant to the guilt or innocence of the accused which could constitute evidence relevant to the guilt or innocence of the accused other than material subject to statutory immunity unless the prosecutor believes on reasonable grounds that such disclosure or full disclosure would seriously threaten the integrity of the administration of justice in those proceedings or the safety of any person. Here, may I suggest that you cross-reference these notes with the discussion of Jones and Dunkel and the Jury Directions Act under the Evidence Act. You might remember that one of the topics that we looked at in evidence was the prosecutor's um, unexplained failure to call evidence. In reading these prosecutors' duty, my mind linked back to Jones and Dunkel and the way that it's currently dealt with under the Jury Directions Act, where on occasion, if the prosecutor, without proper explanation, fails to call a witness, then there may be evidentiary consequences of these ethical responsibilities. Moving to 101, and this is also fairly regularly examined. You might think that it's examined in pairs with topics such as direct briefs and cab rank. So these are briefs which must be refused or must be returned, 101, and in a moment we'll deal with briefs that may be refused or returned. So as per slide 23, no gaps happily, and this is an edited version of the rule, so you'll see some ellipses as we go on. A barrister must refuse to accept or retain a brief or instructions to appear before a court if, so this is must, barrister has information confidential to any other person in the case or prospective client, and information may as a real possibility be material to the prospective client's case, and... The person entitled to the confidentiality has not consented to the barrister using the information as the barrister thinks fit in the case. And you'll see the other um, prerequisites. Client's interest in the matter or otherwise is or would be in conflict with the barrister's own interest or the interests of an associate. Moving on to K of Rule 101, there are reasonable grounds for the barrister to believe that the failure of the client to retain an instructing solicitor would, as a real possibility, seriously prejudice the barrister's ability to advance and protect the client's interests in accordance with the law. Barrister has already advised or drawn pleadings for another party to the matter, etc. So in those circumstances, the barrister may not retain the matter. 
Rule 105 moves to briefs which may be refused or returned. So the run of provisions following 101 uh, continues to shape briefs which must be refused. Briefs which may be refused or returned, and also here, mercifully, we don't have any gaps to fill. A barrister may refuse or return a brief to appear before a court, A, if the brief is not offered by a solicitor. This is another particular that feeds into the direct briefing scenario. B, if the barrister considers on reasonable grounds the time or effort required for the brief threatens to prejudice the barrister's practice or other professional or personal engagements. C, if the instructing solicitor does not agree to be responsible for fees. D, if the barrister has reasonable grounds to doubt that the fee will be paid promptly or in accordance with the costs agreement. G, so moving on to G, if the barrister's advice in preparation or conduct of the case, not including its compromise, has been rejected or ignored by the instructing solicitor or client as the case may be, and so on and so forth. And also, as mentioned on the slide L, where the brief to appear is to appear before a judge whose personal or business relationship with the barrister is such, is such as to give rise to an apprehension that there may not be a fair hearing. Okay, 19 in our list of 20 hot ethics topics, devilling, which is rule 113. Um, and this causes many bar exam candidates to say, I do not know what you are talking about. Devilling under rule 113 is as mentioned earlier, an exception to the normal rule prohibiting employment relationships being entered into by barristers. So Devlin 113, subject to 112, uh, 112 is a barrister must not hand over a brief to another barrister to conduct the case or any court appearance within the case unless the instructing solicitor has consented to that course. Note, though, 113, a barrister does not breach Rule 12, which was the prohibition on employment, by carrying out a specific task of research or chamber work. Carrying out a specific task of research or chamber work given to the barrister by another barrister or by giving such a task to another barrister. So long as A, the barrister who was briefed to do the work takes full personal responsibility for the work, B, the work is delivered under the name of the barrister who was briefed, C, the arrangement between the barristers does not go beyond an ordinary devilling or reading arrangement and in particular does not involve any standing retainer or employment terms, and D, the arrangement between the barristers does not provide and is not intended to enable the barrister giving the task to make a profit from the other barrister's work over and above reasonable remuneration, reasonable remuneration for supervision of and responsibility for the other barrister's work. So that is that general exception to the normal prohibition on employment and engagement of other barristers. And with good fortune um, for many of you who will go on and, and uh, pass the exam and read for the bar, it does tend to occupy good chunks of the first couple of years of practice doing that research and chambers work for others. And this is the capacity to get employed for it and paid for it. Okay, last, importantly, confidentiality and conflicts and the provisions that follow 114 supplement this rule. I've included 114, 115 and 116 on the slides and you can have a look at the others as time goes on. 
a barrister must not disclose except as compelled by law or use in any way confidential information obtained by the barrister in the course of practice concerning any person to whom the barrister owes some duty or obligation to keep the information confidential unless or until a the information is later obtained by the barrister from another person who is not bound by confidentiality or B, the person has consented to the barrister disclosing or using the information generally or in or on specific terms. And 115, a barrister must not disclose except as compelled by law or use confidential information under Rule 114B in any way other than as permitted by the specific terms of the person's consent. Could you please pair that provision with client legal privilege in your notes? So the ethical duties of confidentiality under 114 and 115 are paired with client legal privilege, which we looked at in evidence. And our very last ethical rule in this snapshot discussion, 116, a barrister doesn't breach these rules simply by showing briefs to or disclosing information contained in a brief to the barrister's instructing solicitor in the matter, to a member of the barrister's staff for the purposes of that person undertaking clerical or administrative work in relation to the matter, or to a reader, or to another barrister doing work um, as permitted by the devilling permission under 113. So those do not breach confidentiality. All right, so in compiling your notes and in revising ethics, that's a good place to start. Most of the scenarios that um, might arise in the bar exam might be covered by either those provisions or those as pointers to the surrounding provisions of the rules. There's no fast way of learning those ethical rules. It's just a matter of reading them and rereading them until you feel a confidence about the way that the rules are organised. There's really almost an infinite number of ways that the ethical responsibilities can be assessed, but you do tend to see recurring patterns as we will when we start going through past papers. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.